Welcome to the Help Me Understand podcast. I'm Dr. Robert Dillon, a school designer focused on innovating the what, how, and where we learn. This podcast is designed to unearth and share ideas and practice the power of positive conversation. Thanks for joining us. And if you like what you hear, share the podcast with friends, as well as rate and review, as this helps more people find this great podcast and others. I'm excited for everyone to hear today's episode. It features a group of talented designers and architects from the firm Horde, Copeland, and Mock. I had a chance to hear their presentation at EdSpaces 2020 about a concept called the Learning Playground. One of the best parts about that conference are the space designs for the learning sessions, and their design was best of show in my book. There will be a bunch of links and resources in the show notes, but for now, Let's get to the interview. Hello and welcome. We are here, uh, like I said, on another new episode, a new season, and uh, we're excited to have uh, some amazing professional architects in the building. That's a new for our podcast, but um, we are excited to talk about something that I learned about at Ed Spaces, and I'm hoping to be able to share some of that with you. So thank you to everyone uh, for joining. Uh, we're excited to have you and hear the story of how the Learning Playground came together. Uh, Lisa, if you would uh, just do a quick introduction for us. Hi, thanks, Bob. My name is Lisa Ferretto. I'm the Sustainability Director at Hord Copeland Moss. Um, I'm also an architect, but I like to describe myself as an urban scientist, connecting people with nature and cities and buildings. Ooh, I like that. I, that's like a whole nother episode. I like that, urban scientist. So uh, who goes next? I am Leah Westein. I am a principal interior designer in our education studio in the Baltimore office. Uh, I've been doing education for, uh, I guess, about 20 years now. Um, got uh, three little ones, so really have a passion for creating uh, innovative and inspiring uh, school spaces. Fantastic. Hi, I'm Valerie Carullo. Um, I'm a research lead and a learning space designer at um, Hort Copenhagen, and I'm very passionate about making research digestible and actionable for designers to implement. Fantastic. And you're in D.C., correct? Yes, I'm in the D.C. Metro office. Fantastic. And last but certainly and not my least. My name's Ileana. Oh, sorry. You're good. <laughs> Sorry to talk over you. Uh, my name is Liliana Soldan. I'm in the Charlotte office. I'm an architect. Um, I bounce around between studios and pretty much all over the place, but uh, I like education quite a bit just because um, I think it's one of those market sectors where you really get to connect with the users, um, either with workshopping or with uh, more direct feedback with teachers and school administrators. So it's one of those, um, it's one of those market sectors that I think has just a lot of opportunity uh, when you're considering the end user. I love it. And I think one of the things that I've enjoyed over the last few years is that um, becoming humble to the fact that as educators, we really don't know as much about design as we think we do. So uh, it's been great to learn from amazing folks like you all around the country. Uh, and now we get to learn a little bit about uh, this amazing collaboration that um, took many years to come into making after uh, pandemic hiccups. But uh, Lisa, tell us a little bit about um, what you designed and then kind of what you put on display uh, for everyone at the EdSpaces conference. Sure. Thank you. Um, so the Learning Playground's full title is Equitable Access to Restorative Learning Environments. 
and it's a physical and virtual showroom of biophilic design strategies and concepts. So it's not meant to be uh, built in its entirety, but meant to connect the dots between research and how do you bring those design strategies into your own classroom. So it all started, it was spring of 2020, it was pre-COVID, and there was a call for a classroom design for that conference ed spaces with the theme of the vision for learning. Um, so I thought it was a great opportunity to bring this team together to talk about sustainability and research and well-being, technology, and just overall space design. Uh, we were selected, but then COVID hit, and the conference was uh, canceled uh, in person, and the physical classroom portion was canceled. So we decided to build this classroom virtually. Uh, they then selected us to be the closing session at Ed Spaces, and in 2021, they came back and we had the opportunity to build this uh, physical representation of the space. Um, and I'll let Valerie talk a little bit more about uh, that research. That's yeah. fantastic. Before I let Valerie talk though, I have to say that um, it was the highlight of Ed Spaces for me. So A, your presentation was amazing because rarely do you get a presentation where you have a physical presentation happening, a virtual presentation happening, the research, the practical, and the experience, it really was a highlight. And it is good to say, though, that anyone who was in that room, it wasn't designed to land that entire spaceship anywhere. That shouldn't become someone's thing, but it really was a journey through a, a set of elements that uh, I think Valerie's gonna talk a little bit about. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Thanks, Lisa. And, and again, yeah, it's not, the learning playground is not meant to be replicated in, in its entirety, but we do hope that you find um, that the collection of spatial vignettes that we showcase are, are useful to you. Um, they're meant to, to really um, demonstrate examples or elements of a physical or simulated environment that are affiliated with, with enhanced mental, physical health, well-being, and student success. Um, so what we found is so much research exists that we could be implementing that's incredibly impactful for students and educators. And many times we see a gap in what evidence shows and how learning spaces are designed. So the learning playground itself is really meant to be a tool to help bridge research and evidence-based design with application. Um, so through some of those spatial zones like the virtual grove or the campfire, the picnic area and so on, um, we demonstrate uh, those design strategies and, and the evidence behind them. Um, the virtual grow, for example, is, is very focused on restorative experience. So we, we go through and show a few different um, space design strategies that might help you build a restorative experience in your own learning setting. Yeah, I, I was impressed. And I think as soon as the word research comes up, it's not that teachers don't want to do that. It feels like a heavy lift, right? It feels like all right, I've got to go read this paper and I've got to digest it. Then I've got to have a conversation about it. Then I have to have a budget for it. Then I have to implement it. Then I have to figure out if kids like it. And then I have, oh yeah, and then I have to teach. And so I think that uh, in so many areas, I work with a, a number of educators who are really big in neurodiversity and that are doing mind brain education work. It's that translation. And so I appreciate that in some ways you're trying to visually uh, translate some of that evidence. Uh, are there two or three pieces of, you know, evidence and research that um, you just wish were more widespread that people knew about and that they could do without a huge lift? 
Sure. Yeah. We, so we highlight four areas and I'll talk about one of those areas specifically, but four of the categories um, that, that um, showcase some of the research um, are one is the restoration and subjective well-being. The second is routine disruption. The third is sense of belonging. So really building that human connection between learners um, and even between educators. And then the fourth is learning outcomes or student success. So with regards to that first category, the restoration and subjective well-being, um, one of the things we hope listeners will take away is um, one of the formative concepts inspiring the design responses we show uh, in the learning playground is a concept from Stephen Kaplan um, that he refers to as attention restoration theory. And attention restoration theory essentially posits that our directed attention takes effort, it takes will, and it can be fatigued. So in other words, like a battery, directed attention is a resource that can be de both depleted and because it can be depleted, it can also be replenished. So that's the area that we focus on, that replenishment um, that Kaplan defines as a restorative experience. So how might we layer in a restorative experience or elements of it in a learning space? Uh, one of the things that the learning playground does is it unpacks examples of those restorative experiences and weaves it into the different areas um, where learning might occur. So there's mounting evidence, for example, that um, that simulated nature uh, is almost, it's not as beneficial as real nature. So obviously real nature is the best, um, but that simulated nature might also um, uh, is also as impactful as experiencing real nature. So could that serve to expand access to restorative environments? So we'll touch on that hopefully as we get into this. Yeah, I, and I love that concept. And I, you know, I often mention to teachers that, you know, we have these big visual displays, 70 inches, 80 inch displays in classrooms, and oftentimes they're blank. And I said, what a wasted space not to put something of nature up there, right? You don't want it to be distracting, but I can tell you every time we've turned on a fireplace on a television and gone, oh, it's part of that, right? Like it's that feeling. And then uh, all of the stuff with slow travel now, I don't know if you guys know these like eight hour long videos where you can ride from like Norway to the North Pole. It's this opportunity to kind of, like you said, restore. And um, I think we take a lot of that from corporate research as well. We put all these folks in like hot seating and interactive environments so everyone's going to collaborate and everyone's just dying for restorative mo restorative moments and so uh, as we talk about restorative practices in schools uh, easy translation I think that that's a nice piece of the puzzle so um, what else like lots of shifts in education over the last couple of years um, where, what are you seeing the conversation shift to what are you seeing um, you know from the work that you're doing around um, this amazing space, to, but in general, the work you're doing for schools, what's shifting for everyone? So this is a, it's actually interesting that you ask us this because a lot of what we designed for our Ed Spaces uh, showroom, we designed prior to any widespread pandemic impact. Our submission went in in early 2020. Um, and so everything that, you know, all of these shifts that we're talking about, the conversations, the importance of biophilia and routine disruption and attention restoration and the sense of belongings for student outcomes, those were already very important to us. Uh, we shifted our research focus only slightly to incorporate uh, much of the digital alternatives due to the hybrid and from home learning uh, that we were starting to see after March of 2020. But 
we really believe that the core of our research remains unchanged. All of those uh, pieces that Valerie just mentioned were, were very important, and we were already shifting that conversation even beforehand. Um, so if anything, they were, they were really already deemed necessary, and they happened at a quicker pace due to the disruption from what we perceived as normal uh, prior to the pandemic. Yeah, our, our goal, I think, um, like Ileana mentioned, is to provide the educators, decision makers, or even uh, designers and architects of learning spaces with those biophilic design strategies and evidence that ultimately enhance the well-being um, and resilience. So um, unfortunately, COVID-19 uh, and the growth of you know, all the remote and hybrid learning settings uh, really had our team taking a deeper dive um, into how to make those design strategies more restorative learning environments um, accessible to the remote learners everywhere. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, these concepts and strategies uh, will be relevant long after the pandemic. So, yeah, I love that, Leah. And I think that um, I think it's validated a lot of the work, right? We were thinking about it before. Uh, we wish more educators were a part of that conversation before about biophilic design and natural light and fresh air and all those things that, and the list could go on and on. But um, I know that this is validated. And now we have another whole audience of people that are saying, okay, this matters now. Uh, we, we know it now. We, we heard you before, but now we get it. Uh, and so my hope is that um, schools start taking the baby steps. They may not be building a $50 million building. They may not be building new classrooms, but everyone really, as we, in, in the new year, uh, people are thinking about uh, how do we do learning spaces in a way that supports well-being, um, I, I think. And so that's really exciting to think as we kind of go forward. Um, what other benefits do you think kind of can come from uh, some of the designs that you uh, put forward? And, and um, Lisa said it better than I. Now I'm going to not call things the learning playground. It has a really long name. But I trust me, everyone. All the details, all the links to everything, uh, and there are lots of gems in the links um, will be available. So fear not if you're not taking notes. So, but what other benefits do you think are going to come to students um, from designs like this? There's some there's some obvious benefits, and then there's some surprising benefits. Um, but some of the obvious ones, you know, like we mentioned, that I think intuitively we know that there's uh, there's a reason, for example, that Frederick Law Olmsted. Uh, design Central Park. You know, there's intuitively we know that when we walk in to a forest, we experience respite and and sort of that restoration. So I think attention restoration is a is an obvious benefit. Um, but with that, when when our attention is replenished, um, we have a greater ability to um, to uh, use selections, which which really relates to problem solving and that lateral creative thinking. So if we if we want to be innovative thinkers. Um, then that's one one piece that I think is is a surprising benefit. Um, stress reduction is another obvious benefit um, tied to research, and then uh, a surprising benefit um, the improvement to working memory. So there's studies affiliated with improved working memory when there's uh, when learners are surrounded by green space, um, and then you know I think one of the other surprising benefits is how a shared experience or kind of creating cues around a classroom like the campfire uh, can really help to um, improve connection between learners. I do think uh, one of the things that I have a chance to do is talk to teachers about how to bring these things to life in the classroom. I'm always like, name it, norm it, 
take pictures of it with kids using it. So we can't ever assume that a new beautiful space is something kids are just going to know how to use. Um, and so I do think it's important uh, that we not only teach teachers uh, how to use these types of spaces because maybe they've never experienced it or they've never felt it, I think even more importantly, uh, but uh, the idea that we have to bring that to the student level as well. And so I, I, I definitely agree. And I know when I'm not stressed, I'm more creative. So, and I know that when my world is visually noisy, that I have awful like working memory, right? Like everything is consumed. And so just an encouragement to all my teacher friends out there, less is often, most of the time, probably more. So again, I, I think that if I harp on anything, it's less is more. Uh, beyond kind of less is more, um, how can schools begin to do this work that you set out in your project uh, with little budget, no budget, kind of how do you get the ball rolling? And um, maybe you've seen some teachers or some classrooms where this has happened. Yeah, so the intent, um, you know, as previously mentioned, is not to um, implement the learning playground in its entirety into the school setting, but um, it's, it's really intended to bridge that gap between evidence and design strategy implementation. So we really encourage every school to take any of these strategies, uh, one of them, two of them, you know, it really is not uh, necessary to engage all of them together uh, and fold them into their respective sites or their projects. Uh, or they can plan um, pedagogical experiences that expand access to nature or restorative um, learning environments. Um, also using furniture as a tool. Every learning space has furniture. So how can we use that, uh, the flexible furniture to create that sense of belonging in a space, you know, whether it's a, a campfire setting, um, you know, or, you know, we just encourage that routine disruption, uh, even with furniture. So it could be as simple as creating a nook or secluded space in the library or even a classroom, uh, which creates that area of refuge for students. Um, and you can use that, you can use exist existing bookcases um, or any kind of layout just to create you know, a more private setting for that, that feeling of refuge. Um, another really easy concept to create uh, just in an existing classroom is having that designated time in class to stand and stretch and, and get your wiggles out, which is really um, a nice a spatial reset uh, that sometimes they need for attention restoration. Yeah, that one's free too, right? Like, yes, and there's huge benefits. As I stand at my standing desk here uh, as we record, um, I, I, yeah, I think that there's so many uh, things like that that um, we can do um, that do a lot of reset, you know, move the blood in the body. We'll get our brains more engaged in what we're doing. And so I, I think that that can be pretty powerful. And where we can, we need to get outside, right? Uh, it's easier to say that in Houston than it is Duluth, but um, it is important that the fresh air, being outside is uh, a huge inspiration. And I know all my listeners know that, um, you know, I worked at a school where we were outside, out in the community, outside of the community learning, and um, that's the best of it all, right? Like if you bring nature in, but get outside as often as you can. Um, you guys talk a little bit more about uh, kind of the virtual pieces that you brought to the table. Um, I'm not sure I'm ready to put on a VR headset and kind of be in that world all the time, but at uh, some point in time, I'm going to be the old guy uh, that um, can't do that as opposed to someone who's leaning in. But uh, I was impressed that, um, you know, we're in a time and place where 
not every school, not every teacher, not every leader can go to something uh, to see uh, these types of spaces in action, but they really need to know what they don't know. And so talk about that design and um, what you guys did in that space. I think the, the virtual environment itself, um, it really it ties together a lot of what we're talking about when we're talking about access and equitable access. Um, we also thought that creating a virtual learning playground, just a, a 3D virtual version of our showroom design, it seemed like an obvious decision to us given all the benefits of technology that we're proposing with the ARVR tools and the digital access, as Valerie mentioned, to biophilic elements being almost as good as nature, um, sense of belonging, extending into the digital landscape. Um, so we thought it would have been a missed opportunity not to put everything in a digital format. And uh, especially because now that we have everything, you know, in a link, we can share it with people who are not just our immediate clients. Um, and essentially, you know, it if you go really to the core function of what the virtual space is, it really is just a database of other virtual resources, but just with a very different user experience. Um, we thought that housing everything in a 3D digital version of our design would greatly enhance the access to the tools. Um, it might also let users explore and find resources for the biophilic and VR tools while looking at a vignette of how those tools may be used to spark ideas, um, to help kind of uh, see what that experience might look like in a physical space. You know, since we are designers of physical space, we're, we're, we use the virtual playground to kind of bridge that gap of just seeing research and then, you know, having someone try to figure out, oh, well, how can I put that in my space? Um, but it also, uh, it really kind of also extends into, similarly to how we believe that a virtual museum tour um, is, a, is an alternative for students who may not be able to as just as easily go visit a museum. It's pretty much the same with as you mentioned, not everyone has the means to just go to the conference or send as many teachers to the conference as they would like. And that when everything is in one link together, it can be distributed quite easily. Um, it also goes a little bit kind of in hand with everything we're talking about with that sense of belonging. When Ed Spaces went virtual, we realized a lot of people who enjoy going to conferences would no longer be able to go. So we wanted to recreate that experience for them. Um, and even though, you know, it might be our first instinct maybe to denounce those not in-person social experiences as, as valid. Um, this might also be a surprise outcome of everything we've researched. Uh, it's that digital sense of belonging is still uh, valid. It's still there and it still helps connect people. So we really wanted to also create a space that people could experience together from that lens as well. Yeah, and teachers around the country struggled and tried to figure out how to build belonging in a digital space. And we've just got to keep practicing, right? Like, because this, even our recording of this, you know, it would be great if we were sitting in the same room, we'd be playing off each other, it'd be that sort of thing. But we're getting better at doing at least a baseline of belonging. So I, I just appreciate the fact that this kind of being in both the physical and digital space isn't going to decrease over time. And so honoring that, um, but I should ask this, and I don't know who picks this up, but didn't you guys feel like you were giving away all your secrets? Like, how do you guys deal with that? Like, here's all the good stuff. We've done all this work. Now, any firm, any school 
do you, here, go use it. How, how does, how does that play into the ethic of your organization? And I, did you guys have that conversation? Well, I'll, um, I'll, I'll field this one, but I want to follow up just with something that Ileana said about not necessarily having to attend the conference because at Ed Spaces, she could not attend the conference. Um, but you, Bob, actually got to see Ileana in the virtual classroom, standing there in the ARVR lounge. And it was a way to bring Ileana into the space for people to introduce Valerie and Ileana in a virtual way inside of the classroom. So I, I think that was really exciting. Um, in terms of I'm a sustainability advocate and optimist. So I'm all about open source information to make the whole world a better, a better place. Um, if we can all do these things to make our students have better learning outcomes, to be healthier and happier, it's going to benefit all of us in the future. Yeah, I'll tag on to that briefly yeah, too. Please do, it's, please do. Go ahead, Valerie. The sense of um, radical collaboration is really our focus here. I think for us to get to improve as a whole um, and offer. Uh, insights into how learners and educators can potentially uh, hack their own spaces or um, or improve spaces for learners, uh, we have to be ra radically collaborative. We have to radically share information and research and evidence and, and design strategies. So um, like Lisa said, it's just a mindset that we're operating under. And, and uh, I think it's all about sharing information. Yeah, well, I mean, we I, have I, equitable I, access in the title, so. <laughs> It only makes sense. <laughs> well, and I also want to chime in too. I mean, we are so passionate about learning environments and it's just so disheartening. I feel like just to think about when my parents were in school and then when I was in school and those spaces have not changed that much. And now that I've got a middle schooler, elementary school and preschool going into their schools and seeing that the design of these spaces are very similar to what I grew up with is disheartening. So if we can share any research or content that we know is going to push education, make inspiring, inspiring spaces, um, then we're happy to share. Yeah, I, I feel the same. And, you know, my work over the last dozen years or so around space design as an educator uh, have been, how do you take these things and unpack them for teachers? How do you do, you know, the guerrilla work on the ground? Like, do you need me to help you throw that away? Let me help you throw that away. Do you need to learn these concepts? Great. Uh, you know, just today, prior to recording this, I was on a call with a school in Canada. They were walking me around their building with an iPad saying, what do you think about this over here? And what can we do here? And um, there's plenty of work to go around. That's how I look at it. We will we will be busy for however long we want to be busy. And so uh, I, I feel good about that. Um, let's shift and just talk about sustainability, though, because I think it's important. Um that was definitely a, a feel for the middle school where I was the principal and we were really, those elements mattered. It's part of that is the learning environment, but part of that is more than that. Um, what else do you feel like we should be talking about in the realm of sustainability um, as schools think about new design? Uh, I think often when people talk about sustainability, they might just think about it in terms of the building and not necessarily make those the connections back to people. So when I often talk about sustainability, I like to do it through the lens of health and well-being. So it's the health of our buildings and our and our planet, but also the communities and all of the people within those communities and the schools. Um, 
So if you talk about zero energy schools, right, everyone's talking about that now, energy efficiency in general, you're going to talk about lighting probably in detail. But can we think about lighting and how it affects a student's cognitive function or their sleep patterns or their overall, you know, emotional emotional state. So it's true that lighting reduces energy, reduces CO2, reduces pollution. And all of that leads to healthier air, which leads to healthier people, reduced health risk, and then an overall a student with enhanced learning or a healthier student is then shown to have a better learning outcomes. So just connecting those dots, you know, from the planet all the way down to one student in a school. Yeah, because I do think that there can be a novelty in a community about like, oh, we have this certification for a building. And it's I, I think there are two audiences, right? Like the audience we design for and then the people that have to live with our decisions. Right. And that happens twice. Right. Like so we can put this great new lighting structure that's energy efficient and going to save us X dollars. And then who's going to have to live with that? Right. The teachers and the students. So um, sometimes. Um, we, there are designers that design for the first audience and not the second one. So I'm always trying to think about like, well, what's this room going to be next? And what happens after you've walked away from this? And so, but I'm super stoked about things like lighting changes throughout the day and being able to do POE lighting in more places. And so I get jazzed about all that little stuff in the weeds as well. So, uh, uh I know that many, many of us, uh, are thinking about everything about like the toxins that are coming out of plastics and being able to really think about all the little things that over time uh, will be good for the planet, uh, but also good for the people that are there. Um, so as you guys continue to kind of push your thinking, um, how do you get out of here's how we design as an organization? Because I've been on the other side of the table multiple times where I've had to hire a firm, right? And you go, well, this firm's going to do this kind of thing for you. And this firm's going to kind of do this type of thing for you because, you know, this is what they've done in the past. How do you put the path, like hold on to the good stuff, but move forward? I've always kind of wondered that. And you guys seem like you're, you're doing that through this project, but how do you get out of your routine and design kind of forward or innovatively? Someone help me with that. Well, connected to sustainability, we always sort of talk about an integrative process. So each project will have a different group of stakeholders, different teachers, different principals, different students, different age group, and a different location. They'll have a vision and the mission of the school and whatever the needs are of that specific project. So in no way in my mind could you actually approach each project with that same mindset. We might have overall goals and in what I like to call project intentions, right? We want to improve the health well-being of the student, the school, the community. Um, going back to our sustainability example, right? We, we have a goal of optimizing energy efficiency, but how we do that in every school will be completely different. It will be based on the massing of the building, the orientation, again, the location and the climate. So I think the the commonality is those goals and project intentions that we like to carry to each project, but how they actually implement themselves will change with each one. And I want to add to that too, um, because collaboration is so important. So no matter how big or small a project is, we as designers and architects have to ask ourselves, who are we designing this space for? So I think Bob, to your point, 
um, every client space is unique. You know, it's not, it's, we have to make sure that space works for the end users. So we have to engage them um, in the process and ultimately collaborate to create these inspiring spaces that meet their needs, but also incorporate these new ideas and concepts that um, generated from continued research. Uh, what we don't want to do, I don't think, is is tell educators this is how you need to do your space. You know, we want to work with them um, to meet their needs and kind of bring to the table our research as well. Uh, you know, which ultimately create inspiring spaces. I love that. I'll do a little lightning round and final question here. So I'll do like a, a prep here, so everybody has a chance to think though. But uh, just what words of advice, right? Like if you were going to uh, speak to teachers, speak to leaders uh, as they think about space design more intentionally, uh, part of it may come from the project you did, but maybe it comes from another piece of passion, but uh, just a, a quick whip around from everybody and then kind of final thoughts here um, about what advice would you give teachers and leaders as they think about where kids learn? Number one thing for me is to get students involved in the workshopping process, um, that they, they are as valid of a stakeholder as anyone else. Um, giving them that authorship, giving their imagination that authorship really increases the sense of belonging in their learning spaces, especially when you're talking about technology classrooms where it's not too uncommon uh, when you're getting in the older students, middle and high school age, they know more than their teachers do sometimes. Um, so that would be my biggest piece is get the students involved and, and really listen to their suggestions. Thanks. I, yeah, I will second that. I'm also a huge advocate for student involvement. I mentioned it prior, um, but teachers as well. You know, students are a primary uh, end user and should be involved in every phase of the design process. Uh, you know, their feedback along with the, any educators, it's invaluable to what we do. Um, it also creates an opportunity for buy-in. Uh, it builds excitement about, you know, whatever their project is, which is also incredibly important in any school community. Yeah, you know, one thing that I has snuck into my conversations more than ever is when teachers are 75, 80% of the budget of a school, why aren't we designing to make them as effective and efficient as we can? We do talk about learners. We should continue to talk about learners, right? Like, but as we talk about teacher retention and recruitment and just the ROI of where our budget goes, like, Poor learning environments are just nuclearizing our teachers from being the best they can be. And so uh, to me, they have to be at the table all along that process. And we should keep that in mind as we think about, well, where should we put some of this money? Um, that's a great way to invest in your teachers. Definitely agree with that. Um, it's not just benefits for the students, but benefits for the teacher, teachers and faculty and any of the visitors of the building. Um, my major piece of advice would be um, to think about sustainability, not just about the school building, but to connect it back to the entire planet and our connection uh, to the rest of the global world. And then also uh, back to the students and what are the learning opportunities for the students uh, that you can connect with that green, that green building. Mm -hmm. Valerie, you get the last word. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah, I, I would say I, I do agree with you, Bob, um, that the teacher burnout, we, I mean, teachers need restorative environments too. Um, so that's a big takeaway. Um, agree with what everyone has said. Um, active listening is super important and that space design is really grounded in, in the active listening empathy and the empathy that we, um, uh, 
use and, and hear about really often leads to surprising insights. And um, the last, you know, maybe perhaps the biggest piece of advice I would say is to have a bias towards action to start now. Um, a lot of these strategies that we've shared today um, tie pedagogy with learning space design. So um, if you start to implement some of these strategies uh, in corners of your classroom or pieces of, uh, of your learning day, we'd love to hear from you. Um, but start to modify your spaces. Um, and I think starting now not being afraid to, um, to work on a low budget is, is what we're looking for. I love it. Thank you all for being here. I really appreciate your time. It's been fun. And uh, we'll make sure that everyone gets uh, their hands on all the amazing resources you have out there. Thanks for listening. More about this podcast and my work with schools and districts can be found at drrobertdillon.com. Until next time, slow down, notice the world, and stay curious. Thank you.